Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already. American politician Nancy Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan sure got a lot of people talking, especially the authoritarian Chinese Communist Party government. They practically threatened war over her trip. Everyone had an opinion about whether it was right or wrong for Pelosi to go on that visit, but ultimately she went and nothing bad, at least in the moment, came of it. But what do we make of China's attempts to tell a prominent US politician where she can and can't travel? What gives them the right to say Taiwan is off limits? And perhaps more importantly, what does this episode tell us about the challenges of dealing with China and the broader intentions of ruler Xi Jinping right now? To help us explore these questions, we're joined now by our guest today, Gordon G. Chang. Gordon is an author, newspaper columnist, and lawyer who has been cautioning the West about the need to deal with an overbearing China for quite some time now. You can find him at gordonchang.com and on Twitter. He joins us now. Great to have you here, Gordon. Thanks for joining us on the program. Oh, well, thank you, Anthony. What were your first thoughts when you heard that China was making noise about the fact that Nancy Pelosi, how dare she, doing a tour of Pacific nations and one of them she would be visiting, of course, Taiwan. The most important thing um, was that uh, Speaker Pelosi had to go to Taiwan, although Beijing then was trying to prevent her from doing so. And she had to go because if she didn't, she would have legitimized and emboldened the worst elements in the Chinese political system by showing everybody else that threats against America work. I think that she was going to make an unannounced trip to Taiwan, or it would have been announced just the day before um, arrival. But what happened, of course, was that someone leaked this to the Financial Times, and that someone was probably in the Biden administration who didn't want her to go. Mm. And really what President Biden did was open the door to making this much of a, big, a bigger controversy than it had to be. Remember, on July 20, um, speaking to reporters, uh, the president said that the Pentagon thought it was not a good idea that she would go. And immediately after that, Beijing not only ramped up its threats, the frequency, but also the threats were more ominous sounding. And that's a real indication that this had become um, a real problem inside the Biden team, who thought that the speaker going was not a good idea. Um, but what it showed to China was that although ultimately the speaker did go to Taiwan, the uh, speaker, um, you know, poked her uh, finger in the eye of Beijing. And that was a good thing because Beijing needed that. It's gotten very arrogant recently. But what it showed to uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler and others, is that although they cannot um, uh, control the speaker of the house, they certainly own the Oval Office. And this is going to be an extremely dangerous time as they escalate their threats against Biden, because those threats seem to be working. Now, is it not just the case that Nancy Pelosi going there just isn't that big of a deal that she was talking about going earlier, that uh, many prominent politicians, not the American president, but pretty much everyone other than the president, not administration officials, they go to China. I, I, I know of other Western politicians, who, no, sorry, not go to China, go to Taiwan. I know of other Western politicians who have made similar trips. Like it's, it's just not that big of a deal. Yes, well, um, the Chinese made it uh, that big of a deal. Um, and uh, I don't think the speaker wanted to create this controversy. But she realized that um, it had gotten a lot larger than anyone had contemplated in the beginning. Because she was going to go, everyone knew it, um, in April. And then she contracted COVID. Um, and, right. you know, 
people thought that eventually she would uh, go before the uh, new Congress. So um, right now you have a out of control Chinese political system. And we can see this from any number of different things that it's been doing and saying recently. And that's what makes the speaker's visit important because she showed Beijing that it doesn't necessarily control all elements of the U.S. government. Now, I know there's been a, a discussion on social media. We saw Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. He was on a big program talking about this saying, well, hold on a second. It's, it's well established that uh, China actually basically owns Taiwan and all the other countries in the world agree. So, you know, you're poking the bear here. What's the big deal? Back off. And I find it interesting that that message has, has gotten promoted because no, at no point has, has Taiwan in their history ever acknowledged uh, that, yes, we're, we're part of mainland China. And of course, their origin story is, is fleeing uh, Mao's communists and hoping to continue the fight. But they, I guess they lost the fight, so they had to stay on the island of Taiwan. But they've, they've never said, OK, fine, you know, uncle, we're part of China now. Yes, well, um, Roger Waters is a great musician, um, but he's really deficient on Taiwan history. At no time in history has a Chinese regime had indisputable sovereignty to the island of Taiwan. Now, the Qing dynasty um, held, um, you know, ruled at least part of the island for only a brief period of time, but the Chinese at that time did not consider the Qings to be Chinese. They considered them to be Manchus, foreigners, and they bitterly hated the Manchus. Um, Chiang Kai-shek, um, who was um, the uh, ruler of uh, the Republic of China, which actually did control the mainland, as you say, uh, he fled uh, the mainland in 1949 and he set up shop in Taiwan. But the Treaty of San Francisco, which formally ended most aspects of World War II, did not confer indisputable sovereignty on him. It left the question open. So Taiwan has never been indisputably a part of China. And in any event today, the people on the island do not consider themselves to be part of China. They don't even consider themselves to be Chinese, Anthony. Um, when you look at self-identification surveys, um, somewhere north of 80% identify themselves as Taiwanese only. Um, somewhere south of 5%, which is now 2% in the latest survey, identify themselves as Chinese only. So you can see that the island has moved away um, from this whole notion of identification as part of China. I mean, people in Taiwan want good relations with Beijing. They want to trade with China. They want to eat Chinese food, but they are not Chinese. Um, you know, as um, you know, the Chinese have now said in the last couple of days, well, there are a lot of Chinese restaurants on Taiwan that obviously makes it Chinese. <laughs> well, Morgan Ortegas, the former State Department spokeswoman said, well, that means Kentucky must rule China because there are a lot of KFCs uh, in mainland China. And, and, and so Beijing's arguments are ridiculous. Roger Waters should stick to what he's doing well and not make statements which are historically inaccurate. I went on a media tour of Taiwan in 2018 and, and, and toured the beautiful country and we saw different facilities and we talked with different experts and, and, and politicians. And you really get a clear sense of a country and a people who are, who are quite happy with their way of life, proud of who they are, proud of having a democratically elected president. And they're also prepared to fight if there's any sort of attack, invasion, amphibious invasions are very difficult historically uh, to pull off. 
uh, I guess, a lot of questions to what degree the U.S. will defend them. And one thinks, why is this really worth it for China in terms of a small landmass of, of uh, I guess, 25 million people or so, which is significantly smaller than, of course, the population of China. Gordon, why do they care so much? Why are they willing to, to say all this rhetoric they said over Nancy Pelosi's trip, basically threatening, you know, world war? I know they didn't come anywhere near to uh, uh, doing all that much aside from some live fire drills, but why do they care? Chinese rulers viewed Taiwan as an existential threat to Communist Party rule. Because although the people in Taiwan don't consider themselves Chinese, um, Beijing believes that they are Chinese and have endlessly, relentlessly propagated that notion. Well, the Communist Party also propagates the notion that the Chinese people are not ready to govern themselves, that they need a totalitarian state to um, manage China. Well, here you have Taiwan, which you pointed out is a vibrant democracy. Um, the people in Beijing's eyes are Chinese. They seem to be doing really well. They got a more advanced society than China. And um, they, don't, um, they don't need a one-party state. Matter of fact, what they've got is a vibrant democracy. Now, Chiang Kai-shek, um, when he came over, was you know a Leninist, a totalitarian. But this place has evolved to being a vibrant, self-governing island. And that proves the Communist Party's main propaganda line to be utterly false. How did we get to this point right now where there's such misperceptions, where Taiwan is not really acknowledged as a country by, by the UN, uh, other countries, Canada and the US, for example, do not have formal diplomatic relations with them. I know something happened in the 70s where I guess Henry Kissinger and others maneuvered a, a bit of a switchover of, of which one of these uh, pieces of land and which government was acknowledged as more formal? There's a lot of reasons for that. I think that um, Beijing has been relentless in its propaganda and Americans um, have generally been, well, you know, this is not a big deal. Um, but also, you know, the American policy establishment has worked very hard to engage China, quote unquote, to integrate China into the international system on the belief that a stronger China would be a um, supporter of the um, liberal international order. And so we have accepted a lot of crap from Beijing over a number of issues, including Taiwan. I think that people are now starting to see that engagement was an historic mistake, perhaps the biggest mistake in American foreign policy from the beginning of our republic. Um, but um, now they're starting to see um, Beijing, as a stronger state, is a belligerent, provocative, um, extremely dangerous. And people are now starting to question um, their own assumptions about Taiwan and other things. So this is necessary. Um, Taiwan is absolutely critical to the defense of the free world for a lot of reasons. And so um, this, is, this is changing. It's not changing fast enough, um, but it is changing. I mean, I know a lot of people talk about Taiwan having good relations with the U.S. and vice versa as being something not just good for Taiwan, but good for the U.S. in terms of having uh, a presence so close to China in that part of the world. Taiwan, based on just the, the basic shape of the country, has been described as, I guess, a bit of an, a, an immovable aircraft carrier just kind of sitting there uh, just far off, uh, not far off of China's shore. Yeah, and it's also been considered the cork in the bottle. Hmm. But um there are a number of reasons why Taiwan is absolutely critical to the defense of the United States. Um, first of all, there is one um, business 
on the island that makes 92% of the world's made-to-order computer chips. In other words, the most important ones. That's TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. But let's put aside trade um, and semiconductors. For more than a century, going back into the 1800s, the United States has drawn its Western defense perimeter, not off the coast of Hawaii or even Guam, but off the coast of East Asia. And Taiwan sits in the center of that critical perimeter um, where um, the South China and East China Seas meet, hence the uh, phrase cork in the bottle. Um, But there's something even more important than that. Beijing is attacking not only our democracy, uh, it's attacking the whole concept of democracy. And the United States cannot afford to allow Um, Beijing to absorb any democracy, especially one as important as Taiwan. And there's still one more thing. Due to the calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan, due to the um, failure to deter uh, Russia from invading Ukraine, Taiwan has become the test of American credibility. And if we don't defend Taiwan, um, then we're not only going to have problems in East Asia, we're going to have problems around the world because who would want to be a friend of the United States? What does America's commitment mean? And so um, we need to defend Taiwan. And um, I believe that defending Taiwan is defending America. Unfortunately, the Biden administration doesn't see it that way. Um, And unfortunately, the Biden administration, although there are obvious war signs, is not preparing for war. Um, But um, that is nonetheless the reality. Um, what are these obvious war signs that you're seeing? Well, for instance, just what Beijing says and has consistently been saying, um, as our great ambassador, great American ambassador to China, um, James Lilly said, um, um, China always telegraphs its punches. Well, well, China's been telegraphing that it's going to punch Taiwan and the United States and everybody else for that matter um, regarding the issue of Taiwan. But we've also seen the rapid buildup of its military, the fastest uh, buildup of any military in peacetime. And, of course, um, these uh, drills that we just saw last week, um, you know, where they declared uh, first six and then seven live fire exclusion zones. And one of those zones, the one that was southwest of the island, uh, was so close to uh, Taiwan that it actually infringed on sovereign Chinese, uh, sovereign Taiwanese airspace and water. These are, these are incredibly aggressive moves. Oh, and one other thing, of course, on February 5, China actually flew a plane over China's, uh, over Taiwan's sovereign airspace. So this is, these are provocative things. Um, China has been pushing out, and it's not just Taiwan, it's India, the Philippines, Japan. Um, and China looks like it wants to fight a war. I'm sure they don't, but they are engaging in activities that history tells us lead to war. We talk about miscalculations as being what leads to war. Are there any particular miscalculations you're concerned about? I'll take the one on May 26th of this year, where um, China, uh, a Chinese jet crossed the nose of a Royal Australian Air Force P-8 reconnaissance craft in international airspace in the South China Sea. Now, crossing the nose of another plane is very dangerous. Um, But China then did something that um, 
perhaps no military has ever done in the history of the world. It fired flares and released chaff in the vicinity of the PA. Mm. We can put the flares off to the side for a moment, but the chaff, you know, chaff is like aluminum foil. It is uh, meant to confuse radar. It's released by planes. Well, the Chinese um, plane released the chaff so close to the PA that the chaff was ingested into one of the PA's two engines, which means that um, if circumstances had been just slightly different, um, they could have lost the plane. Now, fortunately, the crew was able to bring that plane back to base, but you can imagine what would have happened if they had um, killed the crew. So these are the types of things that Beijing is doing um, and is just tempting the world. and one of these, the law of averages says that one of these dangerous intercepts is going to go horribly wrong. Um, and then the, the world will have to take steps because Beijing is um, making it very clear that um, they want the world. And by the way, we're not just talking about Taiwan or parts of India or Second Thomas Shoal of the Philippines or the Senkakus in the East China Sea that are... Um, governed by Japan. We're talking about the entire world. Xi Jinping has been pressing this notion that China is the world's only sovereign state. And since 2018, the Chinese officials have been publicly talking about the moon and Mars as sovereign Chinese territory. So unless you want to um, be ruled by China to become a colony, um, we're going to have to take a stand someplace. Do we not do a good job of of listening to what China is actually saying? You know, one thing that I I find interesting- we do an excellent job of purposefully right. not paying attention to what China is saying. We are not only oblivious, but we're determined not to listen. I, I mean, there are those speeches where Xi Jinping has said, and I know there's that 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 missive on the, the nine no's or however many no's it is, where they're like, oh, the human rights thing. No, Western fiction, we don't do that. Um, freedom of the press. No, that's just this joke. Independent judiciary. Uh-uh, doesn't happen here. And that's like, these are them giving speeches saying all of this. Like, it's not anybody making it up or hypothesizing. They've said it. They've said, we don't do these things. Well, they've been very clear about what they want, about things that they don't do, which they obviously do do, and the things that they do. Um, and um, we're not, um, we are purposefully ignoring it or um, going out of our way not to see it, even though it uh, threatens our critical national security interests, threatens our sovereignty. Um, We have a political class in the United States, and and you do in Canada as well, um, that um, is not defending in my country or your country. We'll be back with more full comment after these quick messages. Do you see glimmers of hope that we're moving in a slightly positive direction. I, I want to give you a couple couple examples. Here in Canada, we have started rejecting some Chinese state-owned enterprises, attempted takeovers of, of some businesses we have here, and it was positive to see that. I saw that, I'm sure you know John Cena, the movie star wrestler, he gave a groveling apology for referring to Taiwan as a country, but then I understand they wanted to, China didn't like the fact that in Top Gun 2, they showed decals on their on their flight jackets of, of the Taiwanese flag. And then I guess Paramount or whoever, Tom Cruise was like, well, too bad, deal with it. And it's the top, top grossing film of the year and Tom Cruise's best grossing film of his entire career. So it's like, well, there you go. You know, there's, there's just tiny little bits of pushback sometimes. 
Well, there is pushback. Um, and this is the way um, democracies work. Democracies don't turn on a dime unless people get killed hmm. um, uh, or people get um, obviously murdered. Uh, China does kill Americans in great numbers. Um, I'll put that aside for the moment. But, I mean, it's, it's not like uh, 9-11 um, where it was unmistakable. So um, this is... Um, that will change American opinion on a dime. But, you know, going back to this, China, um, we don't know 100% where SARS-CoV-2, the pathogen causing COVID-19, came from. But, Anthony, we do know some things 100%. And that is that for about five weeks, you can argue four or maybe even longer, but for weeks, Chinese leaders deliberately told the world that SARS-CoV-2 was not transmissible human to human when they knew it was highly contagious. And at the same time, while they were locking down their own country, lockdowns are controversial, but by locking down their own country, they were saying, this is what we think works. While they were locking down their own country, they were pressuring other countries not to impose travel restrictions and quarantines on arrivals from China. You put those two things together, and it's unmistakable that China deliberately spread this disease beyond its borders. That's 6.4 million people have been killed by COVID-19 when none of them should have contracted it. Um, that's the maliciousness of this regime. And yet the American political system has yet to acknowledge that. Matter of fact, Biden um, has never, in his five conversations with Xi Jinping ha as president, has never raised the issue of the origins of COVID-19. And that is um, dereliction of duty. His most important constitutional duty is defend Americans from foreign attack. China attacked the United States, killed 1,031,000 Americans. And Biden says, well, whatever. Now, we did see some people in China eventually go, we have had enough with these lockdowns. We're typically compliant, but it ain't happening anymore with the, the Shanghai lockdowns, which continued like whatever, two years into it. Uh, there were definitely some emerging protests. Where do you see things standing right now in terms of people in China not being pleased? Because we know a lot of people have entered the, the millionaire class and, and it's actually proven quite, quite good for them. And obviously people in the West want to uh, some business people want to get a crack out of that, want to get a percentage of that. So there's a lot of people who I think are, are very happy in terms of feeling like they're sharing the spoils. But I get a sense that there's still a, a lot of people who are increasingly unhappy as well. What, what's in the balance there? The Chinese people in general, and it's hard to generalize over 1.41 billion people, but right. a lot of Chinese people are really unhappy for a lot of reasons. And it's not just because of the quote, dynamic zero COVID policy of Xi Jinping, which, by the way, they're now, um, you know, we're still seeing that the regime is still imposing these um, draconian lockdowns across the country, especially in Hainan and the western part of the country and in selected areas in Beijing and Shanghai. Um, but it's, it's more uh, than that, and that is um, the Chinese economy is um, in distress we know this because the property sector looks like it's almost in free fall. And um, property is really important for China, somewhere between 25 to 30% of gross domestic product. This is the store of value for many middle-class Chinese. They don't, buy, they don't buy stocks or they don't buy gold coins, or if they do, they still put a lot of their um, investment wealth into um, 
uh, unoccupied apartments. And uh, those unoccupied apartments have fallen precipitously in value in the first half of this year, down 30% by some measures, maybe more in reality. Um, and that has, that has really hit the middle-class Chinese um, where it hurts. We've seen these mortgage boycotts where people who have, put, um, have bought these uh, flats from property developers, but they're not going to be, you know, they're, not, they're unbuilt um, but people are paying mortgages to the banks on those unbuilt apartments. Well, we got the mortgage boycotts across the country. They're not paying the banks anymore. Um, and we see the bank runs, people protesting in front of banks, um, which can't pay back depositors. This is, uh, this is throughout. This is systemic. And Beijing has been able, through its coercive means, its tools to control people. But the people, to answer your question, just are not happy. They may not... They may not demonstrate every day, but you can tell from social media and from other um, means that the Chinese people are not happy right now. What are the general responses and reception right now of the increasing digitization of their lives that sees them tracked more and more by their government? I understand there's the social credit system that rewards and punishes uh, the behaviors that the state approves or disapproves of. How how is that is that going smoothly for the government? Well, people are not protesting, and largely because they don't have a choice. Um, in, an, in China right now, people call it authoritarian. China may have been authoritarian during the Jiangsumin and Hu Jintao years. You can argue about that, but it's certainly moving back to totalitarianism now. And we can see that, for instance, with the social credit systems nationwide. Um, we can see it with uh, the uh, digitalization of the currency, um, which will allow Beijing unprecedented control over people's wealth. Um, people don't really have a choice. <laughs> Excuse me. People don't really have a choice, though. Um, Beijing is is going to um, is making progress in eliminating paper money and coins, and um, people China actually. Apart from what Beijing is doing, you got to remember that, that Tencent and Ant Group have developed like the world's most sophisticated payment platforms. And the Chinese people were used to this well before the central bank started talking about the digital UN, um, which means that um, people were there were, were happy to use these extremely efficient payment payment platforms. Well, then the central bank comes along and now is competing with Ant and Tencent with its digital currency, um, which is basically another story about how China is attacking its most successful private companies. But that's another story. Um, so what choice do the Chinese people have? Um, cash is becoming unacceptable. And to a certain extent, we see that in North America as well. Um, not like it's being pushed by the government, but just there's a general convenience factor with carrying money around on your phone. Right. And it's happening despite, for instance, the Federal Reserve and, you know, um, the Treasury Department, which are not pushing a digital currency in our country, but we're seeing the same phenomena. Is the convenience factor. I mean, I, I am sort of intellectually against this being boxed in with more and more digitization. I never carry cash on me. So I'm one to talk. My actions are actually propelling us in that direction. I like cash um, because, um, and it's not a question of surveillance. It's just, you know, exposure to your 
you know, you run out of, in the middle of the night, your car breaks down and, you know, there's this small garage and the guy doesn't, you know, take, you know, whatever. If you have cash, that's good. But that's another story. But you know, you're right. It, this is this is happening around the world. We had an interesting debate happen here in Canada when the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, were arbitrarily illegally detained for well over two years. We finally got them back. And there's a lot of talk simultaneously about how we must ban Huawei because, of course, there was the detaining of Huawei CFO Men Wang Zhu here in Vancouver uh, at the request of, of the U.S. Justice Department. She was sent back. The two Michaels were brought here. It seemed like definitely something of a trade. And then finally in May, Justin Trudeau did say Huawei has been banned. We never thought he'd do it, but he did it. Is this a sign, and the other 5G nations have all done the same to varying degrees, is this a sign that we're going to make more of the right choices to, I, I don't know if decouple is the right term, but to, to insulate ourselves from this sort of stuff, or are there still a gazillion battles ahead? Um, it is both a, a good sign, and yes, there are a gazillion battles ahead. Um, I mean, if Canada wanted to stay a Five Eyes country um, within the intelligence sharing consortium, it, it had to ban Huawei, um, because otherwise... Um, you know, the most sensitive intelligence could not be shared over Huawei networks. Um, so it was a good thing. Um, I'm sh the thing about Trudeau was that it took him a very long time to make the only reasonable choice in these circumstances. Right. So that shows you how powerful China is. Um, but yeah, we are moving in the right direction. But the problem, Anthony, is that we're not moving fast enough. Um, we are we sort of understand the danger that China is now posing. Um, it started to percolate through, but Beijing could um, could do something in the very near term, and we would still be unprepared. By we, I mean not only America but the rest of uh, the rest of the world. We had a couple proposals and discussions that were front and center here in Canada. Uh, in previous elections, and particularly when the two Michaels were, were being detained, there's a lot of public interest in this. Uh, politicians were proposing a broader ban of state-owned enterprises, Chinese state-owned enterprises making purchases here. I thought it just flat-out ban made sense, um, but uh, I guess they were going to narrow it to more sensitive industries. Uh, another one was Canada withdrawing from the Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank, which is like China's uh, attempts to basically supplant the IMF and the World Bank, as, as you know. What other things w would you put on the table? Because we're kind of at a lull period where those ideas were, were really being sent around, but they're not really anymore. And I, I worry we've kind of lost interest in that. Yeah, China uses every point of contact with our country, for instance, to take down our society. So that means until we get a handle on this, we need to eliminate those points of contact. We're talking investment. We're talking trade. We're talking technical cooperation. Eliminate um, trade both ways? I, I think that we absolutely have to do that um, if we want to defend ourselves. I know that it's not politically acceptable. I know it'll take some time. But unfortunately, China is using its um, position in trade to um, move our country in directions where it shouldn't be going and to actually destroy our country. Um, how do we deal with the fact, though, like how we're addicted to cheap debt, we're also addicted to to cheap products from China. It's kind of what, what's what's fueling our I don't right. know, lower, lower middle and, classes. And we have to make a decision um, whether we want to remain a free society or whether we want to buy crap at Walmart. Um, 
But things are changing in that regard, um, though not fast enough. Um, I mean, we should be onshoring. Um, and it just, uh, you know, China threatens its hold over, for instance, pharmaceuticals. They did that in the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, um, saying that they would withhold um, pharmaceuticals from the United States. Well, that's completely unacceptable. Um, and yeah, we have to do this. Um, I'm not saying it's politically practical right now, um, but I'm saying that if we want to remain a free society, we're going to have to do those things which are considered to be um, impractical. I mean, if China kills American service people, then yeah, people will get on board. Hmm. Um, we are seeing, as you point out, um, attitudes changing about China. Um, and what was considered to be impossible before is now actually being done, but we're not moving, as I said, fast enough in that direction. There's been a lot of discussion about the ways Xi Jinping is or is not watching how Vladimir Putin's incursions into Ukraine are unfolding. What do you think China is taking away from that right now? Um, they saw the failure of the West to stop a far weaker Russia. Last year, the United States, the 27 nations of the European Union, and Great Britain had an economy 25.1 times larger than Russia's. And yet, this coalition um, with overwhelming power couldn't stop Putin. I think that that's what China sees. I think that China sees um, the unenthusiastic um, imposition of sanctions, the unenthusiastic support for Ukraine with military um, equipment, and they say, well, look, you know, the West is done. Now, I'm not going to say that that perception is correct, but doesn't matter what I think, doesn't matter what the truth is, it matters what the Chinese think. We know from Chinese propaganda from the fall of Afghanistan um, what they think of the United States. Um, and they, they were very clear. And they were actually talking about Taiwan um, as uh, the Afghan capital was falling. So we don't need to speculate how these folks look at us. Um, right now, we're not deterring China very well. And the Biden administration has an obligation to reestablish deterrence. History tells us that those times where countries try to reestablish deterrence are the most dangerous of all. And we're in this period right now. Gordon, to bring it back full circle, talking about Taiwan, whether it's Nancy Pelosi's trip there, future trips, future discussions and, and relations we have with that country, what would you recommend policymakers in Canada and America or just regular Canadians who are, are curious about the issue, what do they need to do next and keep front of mind when it comes to Taiwan? The president of the United States needs to go into the Oval Office before the cameras. Prime Minister of Canada needs to go behind his desk in Ottawa in front of the cameras and say to Beijing, we will defend Taiwan. I think they also need to say that we will offer mutual defense treaties to Taiwan if Taiwan wants it. We should offer to recognize Taiwan as Taiwan, not as the Republic of China. If Taipei wants it, we should pre-position um, munitions and supplies on the island, and we should be putting troops on the island as a tripwire. That's an effective strategy. We know that because um, a small American force sitting in South Korea has stopped a far superior North Korean military from crossing the demilitarized zone in force. Hmm. Um, we do it with 28,500 Americans. Um, 
which would be wiped out in the first hour of a general war on the Korean Peninsula. But they stop the North Koreans from thinking that they can do this. We need to do the same thing with Taiwan. We do that. The Chinese will huff and puff. They'll scream and yell, but they will not invade for a lot of reasons. Um, we don't do that. We're inviting World War III. It's as simple as that. Gordon Chang, thanks as always. Great conversation, insightful, provocative, lots of great ideas on the table. Thank you, Anthony. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.